Just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water, <laughs> here comes a very special bonus edition of From the Bridge. We're here today to introduce to our listeners our new fish bait CEO, Rob Temple. After a brilliant career at ESPN, Rob will be here to talk about his plans for fish bait. Of course, we'll pontificate from the soapbox and, yes, indeed, showcase another great place to eat on the road with the wreck. So let's jump right in. You know, change is inevitable. This time last year, no one had ever heard of COVID-19, and yet it came and changed both our lives and our businesses forever. I know I didn't appreciate anything about the coronavirus, but I do know I am a better person and a better leader and a better husband, father, and grandfather because of what I have learned and applied this year. But in most cases, I like change. I'm a, if it's not broken, then break it kind of guy. I believe only change can move us forward both personally and professionally. You can either embrace change or suffer the consequences because change is always coming. In other words, you can have lunch or be lunch. We have big changes coming to Fishbait. After 17 years, I will step down from my role as CEO and we will bring in a new leader And I'm very, very excited about that. We are combining our two businesses, Fishbait Marketing and R&R Bait and Tackle, into a new entity called Fishbait Solutions. My longtime partner, Ron Cook, will become the chairman of the new company. And I'll continue in my role as the captain and the chief creative officer and will embrace our new leader, Rob Temple. Rob and I have been great friends and business colleagues for a very long time. We both grew up in Atlanta. Both are what we call DeKalb County boys. I went to Avondale and Rob went to Druid Hills. Rob is a graduate of the University of North Carolina and is a very proud Tar Heel. We first met about 30 years ago when he worked for my good friend Mike Reichman. And you may remember Mike has been a guest angler on our show in the past. And they were together in an agency called ISIS, International Sports and Entertainment Strategies. Later, we started working together when Rob went to ESPN, but I'm going to let him tell you about that later today. Rob's wife, Betty, is the managing partner at a major law firm, Womblebond Dickinson, and he has three children, Sophie, who is a junior at the University of North Carolina, and he has two other kids, Sarah Beth and Hudson. Rob and his family live on a beautiful farm in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. One of the things that was reinforced from this COVID-19 year is my desire to only work with people I love. Rob is someone that I have great respect for, but also consider to be one of my best friends. And what's better than working with your best friends? That would be nothing. So let's welcome Rob to the bridge. Greetings. Good morning, Rob. We're glad to have you here today from the bridge. 
Good morning, Rick. Thrilled to be here. Believe me, thrilled to be here. Well, we got lots to cover today. We're going to play this little kind of fun game of this is your life, which is always kind of fun to do. But, uh, you know, a way for uh, our podcast listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Let's start at the beginning. You know, we're both Atlanta boys. Uh, you went to Druid Hills. I went to Avondale. Um you know, it, it, it's funny. I, I know your neighborhood. You know my neighborhood. It's uh, it's kind of fun. But what made you, as an Atlanta boy, migrate to Chapel Hill? Oh, great, great question. And uh, and what's remarkable about that is, you know, I grew up with pretty in pretty modest means, and uh, was fortunate to go to Fernbank Elementary and Druid Hills High School, public schools, but but adjacent to Emory University's campus. And so the the kids at those schools were were just really, really sharp and took a lot to keep up with. And so my inspiration was really two things to go to Chapel Hill. One, of course, was my father went there both just before and just after World War II, serving in World War II. And so that obviously was my my great inspiration. But I was the only one of my of my uh, three brothers to go there. And, and that was my main inspiration. But also my sophomore year, Michael Jordan hit that shot against Georgetown as a true freshman. <laughs> and that didn't hurt. That sort of that, that was part of my my absolute uh, uh, inflection point for the, the passionate love of sports and college sports and college basketball and my Tar Heels. And that that started really a lifelong love affair that's never wavered you know i got in out of state i was i was a multi-sport athlete and class president a lot of things i got in out of state made dean's list over the old well i'm now serving on the board of visitors probably the best decision and gift and blessing i've ever had was getting admitted and being able to go to and graduate from unc chapel hill well you had to work your way through school i mean i mean you you know you 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 weren't you, you had to do some things that I think, and you picked things to do that helps you get through school. I think that was really part of the learning experience. We talk a lot of times about maybe 80% of what we learn in college. We didn't learn in the classroom, um, <laughs> you, you know, and you had a chance to do some things. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned I, I grew up of modest means. And so from the time I was, 11 or 12 years old, I was, I was cutting grass, painting houses, doing gutters, raking leaves. I mean, I, I sort of owned my neighborhood. <laughs> I was the, and I did it for a stick of gum or a, or a $10 bill. It didn't matter, but everything, you know, went home with me, went into my bank account. And I was the kid in high school that paid cash for everything. I think some of my teachers thought that I was, you know, had a side business, but I was, but I worked all the time and paid my way, um, uh, through things in high school that were necessary, bought my own clothes and then paid my way through Carolina out of state, which meant that I had to work all the time, Christmas holidays, vacations, summer. And I had a lot of different jobs. I took a little time off to earn more money to go back and finish. And so for me, I've always kept that degree from Carolina on my wall in every office I've had because, because I paid every penny for it. And it means the world, to me, it meant the world to my parents to be able to do that and uh, and to, to not only be able to pay for it, graduate, do well academically, but then to do things there that contributed a legacy to Chapel Hill for me was wonderful as well. And that that was really 
helping the university and John Swafford and Dick Padour start um, a program called Carolina Fever that we started in 1987 and 88 and that still exists today uh, and has been uh, a marketing vehicle, an engagement platform to connect the student athletes of all, you know, freshman to senior year and grad school to connect them with all of the student athletes in sports. You know, so all the, all the kids at Carolina are connected to, to all the student athletes, all sports, not just football and basketball through Carolina fever. And it's, it's been a great um, legacy of support at the university over the years. Well, so then you get out of school. What was your first job? My first job I actually was hired on campus by a guy in a suit, the vice chancellor of development came up to me and asked to take me to coffee. And I, you know, I was, I was a senior and he wanted me to run the phone-a-thon, which is the phone bank of, <laughs> you know, probably don't do this anymore. We had, you know, a hundred students in there calling UNC alumni asking for cash donations annually and matching gifts to the university for the annual fund. And I did that for about 18 months and then, and then was asked to become an assistant dean in the College of Arts and Sciences and associate director of the Arts and Sciences Foundation. And that's where <clears throat> that's where I really started applying my marketing interest to help the university market initiatives and write proposals and things and raise money for uh, the bicentennial campaign at Carolina. Again, connecting me back to history, which I was a poli sci and history you know, major at Chapel Hill. And and so those were my first jobs out of Chapel Hill and to get paid after having paid my way through Carolina to get paid to live in Chapel Hill for four years and to move from the white pages in the Chapel Hill phone book of, of uh, students to the blue pages of faculty was quite, was, was a great experience and a great way to learn. And I met a ton of alumni who were in all different industries, liberal arts background, but had become lawyers, doctors, entrepreneurs, business people, Economists. It was so fascinating to meet people generally that were 45 plus had been successful in their careers and they and they were expressing their love, Carolina, back through me to, you know, different programs and initiatives that 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 drove their interest and love for Chapel Hill. And that was a phenomenal experience, a great way to start, you know, a career that I had no idea what it was going to turn into. But it was a, a great way to start and learn and and give something back to Carolina. And what led you to, you know, Mike Reichman and the guys at ISIS? Well, it's funny, you know, like a lot of things in, in my life early on, I, I had challenges um, through my dad's health was failing. And then, you know, later we may talk about my wife Lori's health, but my dad's health was failing and my mom was getting overwhelmed with sort of taking care of him. And so I made the decision to try to move back to Atlanta. And, and I had a great friend who worked for Mike Reisman and Tim Smith and Chip Campbell at a sports marketing firm in Atlanta that was just a startup. So that, that'll sound familiar. And, um, and they were doing some Olympic work and some other things. And they asked me to come down as their director of sales and marketing. And it was a chance for me to, to get back to Atlanta. I lived in our garage apartment at our house on East Lake Road. Got up every morning at five and took care of my dad with my mom and then went to work during the day and, and did things for them with the Olympics, the Paralympics, World Cup, the SEC, others. And then I'd come home at night every night and help my mom take care of my dad and finish up things. And I did that for 
for about four years in Atlanta, but, but it was a great experience because it started me in my career in sports marketing and lifestyle marketing and, uh, and media and everything else. So it was a, it was a pivotal moment that was driven out of, um, you know, coming home and, and being with family and being there to care for my dad. Well, I, I tell a lot of young people this, that, you know, your first job in the agency world, go to work for the smallest agency you can find because you'll do more <laughs> things. I mean, you, you know, you will. I mean, you know, you know, you go to a big old agency, they'll put, they'll plug you into one place. You know, you're going to be the hospitality coordinator and you're going to do that for five years. But in the case of, you know, a startup, you, you, you really have you have to, you know, master a lot of skills. You have to juggle a lot of balls. And not only are you juggling, you know, professional balls, you're you're juggling some personal balls at the same time. And then they then they ask you to go to Australia. I mean, that's yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, that's, I didn't know whether that was because they they wanted me in another hemisphere or <laughs> <laughs> or it was a great. But it, no, but it was a great opportunity. They had been giving me more and more things to do, both on the sales side helping sell for different properties uh, that we represented and on the marketing consulting side. And so they, this was a big deal for them. They, we, we had been pitching in the days before zoom, we had been pitching business and, and consulting with clients in Australia and we were winning um, business with, with uh, Westpac, a big bank down there and Anset and Pacific Dunlop and others. And so we because we won the business, they had to open an office, and so they asked me to fly down there initially with with another guy named Sam Strang, who later worked with the NBA. Great guy, been at ProServe and worked with us. And Sam and I went down and opened the office for Clarion and DMBNB at the time, which then was the DNA that had evolved into Velocity and Epic and Team and KTG and and all that with Reisman and Grant, and and it was a phenomenal experience. I I was with them for a couple years in Sydney before I got recruited to the seven network. But I, one of the funniest things about working down there is I figured out the time zone advantage, which was I would work for our clients in Sydney during the day. And I would send content and projects to Clarion in Connecticut and Darien, Connecticut at, at, at the end of the day they would work on it and develop point of sale and art and decks and things that I'd have on my desk at 7 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> so I, I found a way to both bill 24 hours a day and be productive 24 hours a day while still enjoying one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And it was highly effective. We were 9-0 and pitching clients related to the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games and, and built some amazing programs down there uh, for our clients. And, and, th and that is, I think what got me on the radar with the seven network, um, to, to make a, a change that I would have never expected, but really led me into the media, the combination of media and intellectual property rights and marketing rights and programs to fuse those together to unlock, you know, more value. Well, you did things there that had not been done before. You know, which was really saying, you know, the, the IP rights integrated with the media rights is where the real value is. And that has been kind of the the blueprint of your career uh, from that point on. Um, you know, you worked down there for um, uh, for a, a pretty interesting uh, guy, Kerry Stokes, um, 
and um, you know you had a chance to to run in the torch relay. I a lot of people don't know this. My grandfather carried the torch in 1984 um, <clears throat> in Atlanta. Uh, the L.A. games in 84, he, my, my grandfather had retired from what was then called the Atlanta Transit Company that's now called MARTA. And because <laughs> he was one of the oldest uh, former bus drivers, they asked my grandfather to carry the torch. And he actually carried it on Baker Street, which was his last bus route. And then lo and behold, Baker Street became the home of ACOC. You know, who knew wow. in 84, you know, so it's really yeah. kind of serendipitous, but, but, but talk about that. Talk, that's, that's one of the great experiences I think ever talk about carrying the torch relay. Well, my favorite part about that story, there's really two things about that story. The, the first part is that I, I turned it down twice. I, uh, Kerry Stokes, as you mentioned, great, great guy, self-made billionaire. Um, he, he put me on the list to run in the torch relay and I turned it down because I thought that someone born and raised in Australia who had worked on these games, who had dreamed about these games should, should carry the torch. And so I, I wrote a note to his uh, chief of staff and, and turned it down the first time. And then he wrote me a personal note the second time asking me to run with the torch. And I wrote him a note back and offered it back to, you know, again, someone from Australia. And then the third time, you know, this is like Roy Williams saying no to Dean. You just don't do that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. What part of and, this don't you get, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the third time, Kerry Stokes, the, the billionaire owner of the Seven Network and a bunch of other stuff, walks into my office and says, you know, Robbo, you know, and, and he wanted to talk to me. And his point was when they acquired the rights to the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games, the first games hosted in Australia since the Melbourne Games in 56 – they were expected to run a deficit of tens of millions of dollars, rights fees on top of production and marketing and everything else. And and when I came in and wrote the strategy for them, which is the, the two-tiered strategy integrating all the IP opportunities and unlocking value in a way that they had never envisioned. And that two-tiered strategy is the strategy that I that I put in place, you know, that's still there for the NCAA tournament, March Madness. But that two-tiered strategy unlocked so much. And I wrote it the fifth day on the job with them. And in six months, we had four deals locked in in writing that generated more revenue than all 255 deals that they had secured two years earlier for the Atlanta Olympics. Now, the Atlanta Olympics were in a different time zone and all that. But but that was when Kerry knew, oh, we got it. We figured it out. And uh and he asked me one time, did we sell the Sydney 2000 Olympics too cheap? And I said to him, Kerry, that, that was my definition of success. When I wrote the strategy, I said to myself, if Kerry Stokes asked me if we sold it too cheap, that'll tell me we, we blew the doors off this thing. And sure enough, we, we exceeded you know, the revenue goals by tens of millions of dollars in profit beyond the tens of millions of dollars that they had expected to lose before that. And um and it was a great experience. But the second thing, so that's why he wanted me to run with the torch. But the second part about that was we had had a new baby. Lori and I had had Sophie and she was about 10 months old when the torch relay came. And I got to run in Penrith as the, we were getting closer to Sydney and there were tens and tens of thousands of people around. But to turn that corner and, and be coming up to the next athlete, the next person I was to hand the torch off, off to and have Lori and Sophie there 
uh, Sophie in the stroller and Lori there cheering me on and to see their faces at that moment was, was what it was all about. And it, and it was such a great capstone for my five or so years in Australia that it, it was uh, unforgettable. And like my college degree, I have always kept that torch, the actual torch that I ran with to a beautiful, you know, case uh, that's always been in my office to, you know, to remind me of the chance that I took to go to another hemisphere and to work for the seven network where I didn't know anybody and to do great things for them. And, um, and, and to have an experience I would have never imagined growing up in Atlanta. Well, we always try to promote lessons on our podcast. We have a lot of young people that, you know, we've made this available to a lot of sports management and marketing, um, undergraduate and graduate students. Um, and I think one of the key lessons here is celebrate, you know, we, we work hard, you work long hours, but you got to have these moments of, of joy. I call it joy on the journey. Uh, you know, when, when Clemson lost to Ohio state, um, they asked Dabo about, you know, one question and they said, he said, you know, we just tell our kids the same thing every day, enjoy the joy in the journey. Um, and, and so, you know, you had quite a journey, uh, in Australia and that was kind of a, a crescendo moment. And then you come home and you get to go to work with my, my pal and my mentor, Jim host. Um, so uh, let's talk about that. Yeah, well, that was a great experience. I mean, I, I had had such a wonderful time in Australia, and I think I think I could have stayed on a bright course with the Seven Network, but uh, I mean, certainly according to Kerry. But I had been down there over five years. We'd had a great experience with the Sydney Games and, and a great success, and the world was coming to Sydney, and so I was connected to people, you know, from the NBA and from the sports marketing marketplace and Chris Welton from Meridian and so many people. And and I started getting asked about coming back to the U S and particularly coming to New York and, um, and interviewed with David Stern and Adam Silver for a role at the NBA that, uh, that interestingly Sam Strang ended up taking, um, and which was great for him. And then Jim host hired me to help him and Mark Kidd and the team reimagine the combined NCA corporate sponsorship IP rights um, with the uh, media rights that CBS held for March Madness and then the 22 championships that ESPN held for uh, the other televised NCA championships. And so, again, I designed a strategy that was based on what I'd done in Australia and, and created a two-tiered uh, media and marketing sponsorship platform that, that had a, an elevated tier of corporate champions that had a distinct set of both media and IP designations and benefits and a second tier, uh, the corporate partner level, and then had even envisioned a third tier, which has never happened, but that's another story. But that, that architecture was put in place. It drove uh, a lot of deals, a lot of increased spending. It drove a lot of unexpected revenue to ESPN who was using those 22 championships as a sort of upfront scatter filler kind of low yield revenue at the time. And it, um, and it drove more engagement from the sponsors, more activation, more use of the IP, more integration with the media, um, more revenue for everybody. And, uh, 
and and was a great architecture that has stood the test of time. Even CBS and Turner to this day still still operate that corporate champion partner program under under basically the same construct. They've done a great job with it. They've had a lot of activation and really wonderful integrations. But essentially, the same architecture um, that was put in place in 2001 is still there today in 2000. Well, I, you know, I always talk about the holy trinity of the sponsorship business of being the the property, the sponsor, and the fan, and the equilibrium on that. You know, one of the things that you did, uh, you, you know, uniquely was to say, "Hey, you know, CBS has you know one championship. Um, we got this other entity over here called ESPN that broadcasts multiple championships, and yet." In the past, sponsors were not activating around those. And one of the, I thought one of the innovative things you did was, was carve out dollars that went to those other non, you know, the non-men's basketball championships in a way that created real value for sponsors so that you weren't talking about three weeks, uh, you know, what we used to call big shrimp, you know, 24 hours of feel good, three weeks of men's yeah. basketball. Now you got, you've got – kind of an annual uh, way for brands to be able to participate in the NCAA. Talk a little bit about that because that kind of led you ultimately to Ed Earhart. Yeah. And it's, and I'll tell you, Rick, it, like so many projects that I worked on, they all start with uh, listening, listening to the client, uh, trying to understand the problems that they're trying to solve. And gathering, you know, what all the data you can, and being really prepared to move to a solution that is right for the client to solve those problems. And so, in the case of the NCA, they knew they had a wild success with March, March Madness, and their their brief to me was help us um, help us have the tide rise so that all ships benefit. We need to create an architecture that that drives value and lifts all of our NCAA championships. And so it, it, it wasn't so much for me about doing a deal with March Madness and then carving out money for ESPN. It was about creating a compelling architecture that, that invited and emboldened clients to see the value in all of the championships. Cause they, you know, March Madness is in March, but you've got all these amazing championships in the fall in the spring afterwards with the frozen four and lacrosse on Memorial day. And then you have this absolute gem of, you know, college softball and the college world series baseball tournament, uh, in the summer. And so these are different windows, different flights, different activation areas for sponsors. And so the architecture was really designed to meet the brief and solve the problems, uh, raised by the NCA. And, um, and I think it did that. I think it's still, to be honest with you, has more, potential to do more for the NCA and more for the partners and more for the student athletes and fans than even what's been realized to date, even though it's been wildly successful. But, um, but that was the design. And, and, and if you look at the DNA of all of the kind of architectures I've put in place for channel seven or the NCA or others, we'll talk about, it really starts with listening and gathering information and data and figuring out what problem are we trying to solve and then, and then being open to the best way to solve that problem, even if it's something that's never been done before. And that's where you have to be, you have to, you have to trust that you can leap and the net will be there. You have to know that you can 
And it is about having faith and trust and the confidence to go where you haven't been before, but with enough kind of data and preparation and experience to know that the net will be there and it's all going to work out great. Well, you, you now then have a chance to pivot because you've, 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 you know, kind of developed a relationship. You know, you, you brought revenue to, to ESPN that they had never seen before. That catches the attention of Ed Earhart. And so you, he, he hires you and, and you're going to go over there and we're going to talk a lot about, about, you know, the 18 years you spent at ESPN, but you know, tragically at this time, Laurie gets sick and, and, um, yeah. And let's talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. So the, so the, uh, in one month, month of August, um, in 2002, uh, a number of things happened. Um, Lori was, and the, the, the biggest thing was Lori was, Lori had a cough. She'd never smoked in her life. Beautiful, healthy, 32 year old young woman, um, had a cough that we were trying to solve. We were trying to get that cough diagnosed. Uh, we had had Sophie in Australia and we were, we were thinking about having a second child and we just wanted to make sure that, you know, she'd be completely healthy through the pregnancy. And so we, we really pursued a diagnosis more than, more than maybe a lot of people would, um, because we wanted a hundred percent, uh, clarity in order to, in order to, you know, try to have a second child. And that pursuit led us to Sloan Kettering and led us to a procedure called a, called a thoracoscopy that finally gave us a definitive diagnosis for Lori that she had brachioovular carcinoma or BAC, which is a, at the time in 2001 to a, a terminal form of um, cancer that was untreatable by chemotherapy or, di- or uh, surgery. So we, we were faced with experimental treatment. And in that month, um, CBS had decided to, to take the host communications contract in house. And so the contract I had for three years at host was, um, was still, was still in place, but I became concerned about it, particularly with now having a cure for Lori's condition. And at the same time, ESPN called me, this all happened within like a, a couple of weeks. ESPN called me from Ed Earhart and said, we want to come talk to you about joining what was then our sports management group. We, we like what you've done for us on the NCAA championships. <laughs> we thought, and we thought, wow, if he could generate that kind of impact and revenue and transformation with these 22 NCAA championships that we weren't really that focused on, I wonder what he could do with the BCS or college football or the NBA or the NFL or football or whatever. So that led to a conversation with Ed. The first thing I said to him is, you know, Lori's been diagnosed. I cannot come to ESPN without a waiver for pre-existing conditions. And it took them a couple months with Disney, but they amazingly got that done and, and sent me that letter. And so in December of that year, you know, I was able to join them. And the timing was fortuitous because Lori's condition at the time was stable. We were on a experimental drug. She was incredibly healthy. And, um, and so we were able to make that change to ESPN, get her in the right care at Sloan Kettering. And then I was able to focus on some new projects that Ed brought to me, again, that were problems to solve. And it was very fortuitous because one of the first projects I worked on ended up being one of the one of my favorite deals I've ever worked on, which is the college game day deal. Well, you know, 
this is when you and I got to be reacquainted. We had known each other a little bit from the ISIS days uh, when I had uh, uh, the strategic group and then sold to Advantage. And then, you know, I did the same thing that you did. I got, I got, I got a little bored and one day and asked my I told my boss, Frank Crackhill, I said, I'm bored. And he said, well, you go run Europe. <laughs> I remember calling Charlotte, and Charlotte said, you SOB. You told him yes before you called me. And I said, oh, honey, I'd never do that. She said, I know, I know, I know you, I know you, and you told him yes. And I, and I said, to which I said, you'll love London. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and we, we, still, we still laugh about that. But, um, um, you know, I, I, we, we got back. Uh, you were doing some stuff at Host. I was now working on the – um, the National Association of Basketball Coaches and the Women's Basketball Coaches Association as their marketing director. And so we started doing a bunch of really fun stuff together tied to college basketball uh, during that, that era. One of the things I, I think I'm proud about is you were looking for somebody to help uh, you with, with college basketball, and I recommended Pete McDevitt. Uh, Pete and I yeah. had worked together. At, uh, he was at that time, I think, uh, working um, – when ESPN was in the multimedia rights business, he was at uh, TCU uh, working on that on that project. Uh, um, but you, but you know, I remember one of the things that you you said to me during that you know very difficult time. You know, you, you said to me one night, "I don't know why I'm not getting a promotion." Uh, and I said to you, if you remember this, I said, "Rob, your wife's sick." ESPN is cognizant of that. You haven't gotten a promotion because they don't want to give you any more. You know, they, yeah. you, you know, and you know, tragically, after you know Laurie passed, you you took a couple of weeks off and you came back to the office and you got promoted. <laughs> I mean, yeah, literally. And, you're yeah. right, Rick. Literally, the first day I was back in the office, Ed's secretary called and said Ed wants to see you in person today, right, right now. And that was a little bit unusual. And so my first thought was, what in the world went wrong that I'm getting called up to Ed's office on my first day back? And he said exactly that. He said, Rob, we we all feel for you. We you have earned a promotion, you know, over the last year or two. But we didn't want to add more to your plate. In fact, what we want to do now is promote you um, and offer you more things to handle, but let you choose what you do or do not want to handle because we know you know, how difficult this has been. And so they had in fact been, been waiting to uh, put more on my plate because when I got there, what I was doing was different than what they had done before. Designing solutions, connecting assets together, working with third parties like you who were what I call upstream influencers, getting to clients and rights holders further upstream to influence better decisions downstream. And Ed saw that and just kept adding more things under my portfolio. Initially, you know, I handled half of college football and the BCS and ESPN 25. And then they added NBA and they added NASCAR in 06 with the promotion and, and, and ultimately ended up leading, you know, and creating ESPN sports marketing across the entire portfolio. But it was, but it really was Ed's vision of how all of this should work. And he invested in bringing in Sean Hanrahan, who had a, a promotional background, activation marketing, consumer marketing background, consumer promotions. And he brought in me, who was more of a strategic architect, intellectual property rights, full spectrum, you know, um, 
but but both the, both Sean and I together, you know, helped design a lot of strategies that unlocked extraordinary value for the company. But Ed was the great champion of that and would help us sort of battle through the we don't do it that way or it's never been done before or whatever and to embrace these new strategies because Ed saw the results. Ed, Ed saw the success of, you know, the first deal I designed when I got there, which was to, to reimagine college game day from being presented by discover card to being built by the home Depot. And Ed saw the impact of that. He saw the impact of connecting the BCS to the regular season of college football, which back in 2003 was a sort of radical <laughs> concept that really had not been done to any degree. And we created in one year, seven major assets that clients invested in <clears throat> that drove value and, and, and promoted the BCS from the first week, Labor Day weekend through the national championship game. And that was pretty transformative as well. And so Ed just kept, you know, and that's Ed's great talent, you know, He's very Pavlovian. If he sees something work, he will feed it <laughs> until it doesn't work. And that was both a blessing and a curse because I just kept having more people and more sports and more things to manage. And what a great ride it was. Well, I'll tell one more personal story. And and um, when, when Laurie passed, Charlotte and I got up to come to the funeral. And, um, you know, I remember it was it was just uh, one of those early mornings so clear in Charleston, you know, one of those just mornings where, you know, you know, um, just, just one of those cold, clear mornings. And we're driving from Wadmala to the airport to fly up to LaGuardia. And, and, uh, we crossed the Ashley river bridge on five twenty six, mm. and we saw the biggest shooting star I've ever seen in my life cross the river. I mean, I was like, Charlotte, did you see that? He goes, she was like, how could I not? I mean, it was like, it was just huge. And then we got to the funeral and it was all about the stars. I mean, it was just yeah. unbelievable. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So you know, we, yeah. well, you know this cause you've been to our farm here. We, we have stars all over the property. Yeah. Um, they're in granite, um, in the ground in different places, <clears throat> honoring Lori and they're hung on the barn and they're hung in the house and, and they're in different places just to remind us um, that she's always with us. It comes from a story called The Little Prince that she used to read to Sophie all the time. And the stars, I'll be there, you know, watching over you. Um, and it comes from our faith. And that, that whole journey, as difficult as, as it was, caring for Lori, loving her and supporting her through that for four years, um, really crystallized my faith. It crystallized what's important in terms of family and and it also, you know, told me to trust and have faith that that there's some purpose to this and that something will come out of this. It was just so tragic to have a, a young mom be taken away, leaving a six year old little girl behind. Um, and if you really just focused on that, it's it's too sad and tragic. It could it could make you bitter and angry and and so frustrated with life. But I but I tried through my work at ESPN. I tried through you know, my friendships with you and other people to stay positive and to have faith and to support Lori as much as possible. And then be, just be ready. You know, again, leap, leap in the net will be there. Just be ready for whatever next, you know, adventure was coming and be ready to embrace it. Well, let, let's, let's finish that chapter and then we'll get back to some of the business stuff. But I also remember, 
I remember walking with my pal uh, on uh, Columbus uh, Avenue um, and, and, and worried about my pal, and you were surprisingly upbeat. And I'm like, no, no, Rob, you need, you need to do this, you need to do that. And you're like, I got it. I got this. I got this. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I call Charlotte. I go, he's just in denial. I mean, it's just making me crazy. He just, you know, I'm trying to look after my pal, and you're like this. But... But, you know, again, you know, our, our partner, Ron Cook, has that great line that that uh, coincidence is when God chooses to be anonymous. And I, I just love that that quote. But, <laughs> you know, you in the midst of all this tragedy, you, you, you get reacquainted to an old girlfriend, to Betty. Um, and, and, and again, a God thing. She sees your email to someone at NASCAR on a desk and and then reaches out to you um and yeah so it, I, I mean it's I, crazy it's just you can't yeah, you can't I'll, make I'll, this up I mean it, it really was a, one of those um humbling moments where you did feel at least for me and, and, and you gotta remember you know the you know the tragedy and, and the loss of Lori really brought me closer to my faith, made me depend and trust in my faith and in God more than ever. And, and so just to, just to clarify, it wasn't in the midst of all this. It was, it was four weeks after Lori's Lori's funeral. I get an I get an email from Betty and it, and it simply says, is this the Rob Temple that lived in Atlanta and went to Carolina? And, um, and like you said, she had run across, she was working on a minority led ownership team for NASCAR as a legal, cause she's an attorney as a legal venture. And she was doing research on the prospectus for Dr. Jerry punch and Brad Doherty, um, who were involved in the venture. And she stumbled across my name because I had just, again, Ed Earhart had just promoted me and had just given me NASCAR, which he told me to turn down. He said, if this is too much, don't do it. And I just said to him, Ed, I love NASCAR. I want to do something new. I need to be busy. I, I'll take it. And I, and I, I probably shouldn't have, but I did it. But if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't taken that gift, um, my name wouldn't have been in there. And I don't know that Betty would have ever connected to me, 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 she and I together. And so that one email led to she and I reconnecting as friends. And we had dated in the early nineties before I had met and, and known and married Lori. And she was the first girl I ever dated that I fell in love with and thought I could marry, except, except she rightfully decided that bottle of wine needed to stay on the shelf a little longer. And, uh, and, and it did for 13 years. And then she and I just began talking and connecting. She helped me with some legal matters, resolving some estate issues in Australia, repatriating some assets there that, you know, from Lori's estate. And then eventually I flew down for a NASCAR meeting in Charlotte and she and I, you know, met and had lunch. But, but while all that was going on, it literally happened, you know, that was happening four to eight weeks after, you know, Lori had passed away. And so when you and I were walking down Columbus Avenue, I told you that I had been <laughs> praying for my next chapter in life and that my prayers had led me to the idea that I was going to, you know, that I'd lost so much in losing Lori that I, that I had earned the right to ask for something remarkable. And so I had been dreaming about this, 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 this friend who had maybe a girl who had gone to Carolina who was beautiful and smart and that she and I were going to hit it off. And I was so prescriptive about what was coming 
but I didn't tell you what was really going on, but you called Charlotte and you were like, I think Rob's lost a screw here. <laughs> I, was, I was worried about my pal and my pal had it all under control. You know, <clears throat> again, you were answering to a higher calling than me. I remember you even came to the house a little bit later and, 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 you know, I was like, Charlotte will talk sense into Rob. I mean, I, I can't, but she, you know, and, and, and of course Charlotte's comment to me was, it's going to be fine. He, he's got this under control. I'm like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, she's a control well, freak, yeah. but it just, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the, yeah. the reality for me, it was a humbling experience because I, when I really sat and thought about it and prayed about it, I, I was like, what is the chance of this being a complete coincidence? What, what is the chance of someone who I was great friends with, who I adored, who's, all of the things, smart, beautiful, extraordinary character, everything, um, coming back into my life after 13 years of having zero contact with her, um, a month after Lori passed away and us reconnecting and being friends again. And, and I immediately knew that I, I would have to be the most arrogant and ignorant person in the world to not recognize the gift of her being brought back into my life and what that could mean to me and to not fear that to not fear the next chapter and and i was fortunate because Lori had left me a series of letters for me and sophie and family and in one of the letters Lori, in her handwriting said you know i trust you you know you've been the best husband and friend i could ever imagine but i trust you to find a new mother for sophie and to and to live your life the way you wanted and to have the three kids that you always dreamed of. And that's exactly what happened. I, that, that letter that I found months later from Lori helped strengthen me for, for the decision to go ahead and get married. And we did, in fact, have two more children, Hudson and Sarah Beth, and ended up with the three children that I had always dreamed about. And I credit um, my faith and God and really Lori having a hand in that and giving me the the push that I needed and the confidence I needed. And of course, Betty for having the faith in me to try that bottle of wine again and get it off the shelf and blow the dust off of it <laughs> and accept me for what I was, which was a pretty fatigued, exhausted um, dad at the time trying to take care of a little six-year-old girl and do my job and get over the loss of my best friend, you know. Well, it's been, it's, y'all have such a great marriage. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, Charlotte and I are so excited about and, and, and Ron and Peggy too, is, you know, not only do we get you, we get Betty too. I mean, you know, that's the, you know, we tell everybody we run a family business and I think 2020 was the year we proved it because we didn't let anybody go and we did whatever it took yeah. to take care of the family. Um, cause you know, a lot of people can say, Hey, we're family and then you find out, you know, you find out a lot about people in tough times, uh, not in, not in good times. Um, I want to go back to the home Depot story. Cause I think it's really illustrative of the way you think, you know, contrary to what people believe home Depot was not the first sponsor of game day. <laughs> uh, the yeah. Dis- yeah, I mean, let's talk about that and a little bit about how that evolved because in That's my right. opinion it is, it is it is most college fans consider that to be the greatest college sports sponsorship of all time yeah and i and there's there's so many people to credit around around this um this property and, and what people don't know 
is that, you know, College Game Day uh, started off as a studio show for seven years. And it the brand was really what I would call an organizing principle developed by production people to organize the studio shows on a very busy college football Saturday. So we're going to light it up in the morning. We're going to light it up in a collapsible show, you know, between the, the, the noon window and the three 30 window starting, we're going to light it up again with scoreboard game day scoreboard 7 PM. And then we're going to light it up again at night with game day final wrapping up the shows as the games go off the day as they get the scores and all that. And so it was an organizing principle, but what they found was after seven years, Kirk Herbstreet, I think convinced them to take it on the road to Ohio state for a big game. And they went there and that's when, that's when Corso did his first headgear because Kirk's wife knew the cheerleaders and they got, you know, Brutus over there and did the first headgear. And that of course turned into a big friend, but traveling to the campus didn't come until year seven or eight. And it didn't come every week. It came for big special games. It took money. It took financial support. It is like, it is like operating a circus, the infrastructure, the build out, the takedown, the week to week, the not knowing where you're going next week. Uh, is brutal on logistics and planning. And so that show had evolved and Discover Card had come in as the presenting sponsor of it for a number of years and had done, excuse credit, had done some activation things where they added scaffolding on site for fans for a better view. They added a jumbotron for a few games to, 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 to draw a larger crowd for the show. They did a number of things that were very compelling. And so when they dropped it, again, they changed CMOs and they went to a different focus on a different demographic. And I, and I know they regretted this decision because I, I spoke to them at length years later when they bought the entitlement of the Orange Bowl during the BCS era. Uh, but that gave us a window. And it happened to coincide when Ed had recruited me to ESPN. So the first thing Ed asked me to do when I got there was to uh, pull a deck together to you know pitch – a replacement for Discover Card. So Discover Card was presenting that show for around five million and change. And the first thing I did with that project is I drove up to Bristol, Connecticut, and met with Mark Gross, who was the senior coordinating producer of Game Day at the time. And I spent a bunch of time with him, asking him what would make the show better. Like, what did he need to make the show? What were his problems that he was trying to solve? What could work better? And that conversation, after, after a while of, of Mark sort of being in disbelief that somebody had driven up to Bristol from the sales office in New York City <laughs> to ask him all these questions, we had this great visit. And he started telling me, you know, I don't think at the time he was borrowing desk to go on the road. He did not own his own dedicated desk, which sounds like a crazy thing back in the day. But in 2002, that was the case and he did not have a demo uh a demo field he did not have a jumbotron every week which did help draw a bigger crowd because remember the talent had their back to the crowd he did not have a bus for the talent he had a trailer that he would rent or he or he'd wire up a classroom at, at the campus there were all these things that he didn't have and i think discover card had only sponsored one of the talent which made the others salty and so I went through all these things with Mark, just asking him what he thought would make the show better, what problems he was trying to solve. And he gave me a list of all these things that I wrote down. If we get a presenting sponsor, can they sponsor, Can they do a, an endorsement deal with all three of the talent? Okay, that was number one. I need my own desk. That was number two. 
I need a jumbotron. That was number three. I need a, a bus. You know, number so once he once he laid all those things out, I came back to him and I said, if I can get you any of those things, will you do a corresponding benefit for the sponsor? And he went to Norby Williamson. He got approval and everything. And um, he said yes to a lot of them. But he never imagined I'd get more than one or two of these things because this this was going to require a sponsor, an advertiser to not only invest more in media for the show, to present the show, but they were going to have to invest in a production subsidy to bring these assets to life. But to justify that production subsidy, I needed a logo on the, I needed to call the show college game day, not presented by discover card, but built by the home Depot. And I told Mark, they're going to pay for you to have a, a dedicated desk built. And he was like, great. If they're going to pay for it, we get to build it and design it, but they're going to pay for it. It's built by the home Depot done. That logo went on the desk for the first time. Discover never had that. Discover never had a physical logo on the desk. Home Depot has it in the front and the middle with the helmets on either side or one on either end. And then when he, when I said, if they'll do the Jumbotron, can they have the bunting and the logos for College Game Day built by the Home Depot around the Jumbotron? Absolutely. The demo field, 50-yard line logo for, for Home Depot? Absolutely. The bus, can I wrap it with the logo and the talent? Absolutely. So a lot of this helped create efficiency, consistency, because he had he was going to have this every week and um, every year. And it changed the way the show operated. It changed the way the show presented to fans and engaged fans. It allowed for bigger crowds because we had a Jumbotron. Eventually, we had two Jumbotrons. Eventually, we added Section Zero for Coke and other assets that drew and engaged fans, whether it was Gillette's Put Your Game Face On or the Cheese at Fly Cam and all the things that they did on activation, all those kind of things added to the experience for fans. And, um, and we and we pitched it to John Costello, the CMO, and his team, and they bought it on the spot, production subsidy, everything. So I called Grossi afterwards, and I was like, "Mark, we we got it all." And he he couldn't believe it. And from that moment on, we were off and running. That's been there's a 20 year construct with Home Depot. It's been renewed every three or four years. They're in I think year 18 of the of the framework, and. Um, and it not only influenced, you know, the partnership with Home Depot, but it influenced how we created other partnerships using that IP with Goodyear and with the Chevy selections and Chick-fil-A's mascot movers when they would bring the headgear in and move them in with cows. <laughs> and all those great ideas came off of that architecture and it allowed College Game Day to be on the road every every week to engage fans, to grow, to take chances, to tell stories. And it and it and it's one of the things I'm I'm really proud of because again it started with the producer and the content and trying to solve his problems to make the show better for fans at home and on campus. And we were able to do that while unlocking extraordinary value for Home Depot and other partners who've been tied to Game Day for years. Well, John Costello was my client before Home Depot at Sears. And um, he he was smart enough to sponsor the Crystal Trophies at the time, the Crystal Football yeah. and the Crystal Basketballs, and the and the, the then what was called the Sears Directors Cup Trophy. I think one of the seismic changes that that you really led was the understanding that to get really big integrated things done, with no disrespect to media agencies, you, you got to go to the to the boss. 
you got to go to the CMO and in some cases even the CEO and and paint a vision and 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 your you know your tenure at ESPN was full of that developing relationships with you know the the Conrad Yorks at uh, Northwestern Mutual and uh, uh, the Steve Robinsons and Dan Cathy's at Chick Fil A, um, the Jim Trebilcox at, at uh, Dr Pepper. I mean, it goes on and on because these are complicated, complex, integrated solutions, but they produce real value. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Rick, Rick, one of the keys to that when I got there, it was rare that ESPN or ABC would do a media deal that included an obligated cost to a third party. And what I mean by that is when they would do a deal, it would be a media deal and it might have a feature and billboards and the commercial units in it, but they were loath to uh, pass money through to a third party to unlock more value. And, and I mean, they never did it. And so when I got there, I developed a principle with Ed that said, Ed, let me do a deal and as long as I don't spend more than 10% of the net value of that deal on a third-party rights asset, that should be a good deal. If I'm demonstrating growth to the company and, and we're taking an asset from X to 2X and to move from X to 2X, 10% of the net of 2X goes to a third party, that should be okay. And that unlocked that. Ed's, Ed's confidence in me to unlock that type of um, opportunity led me to you with the NABC, WABC, uh, WBCA, Crystal Football, and uh, Crystal Basketballs. It led me to the AFCA with the Crystal Football and being able to do that deal initially with ADT and Dr. Pepper. And it led to so many other things. The Wooden Award for Wendy's that we did. You know, there's so many things where we went out and found an authentic asset that was owned by a third party that was part of the ecosystem of college football or whatever the property was. And, and we were able to bring that to life in partnership with a client and tell stories around it and do appearances and integrations on air that had really not been done before I got there in 2002. And then it, now it's part of the fabric of consuming ESPN. You know, you don't think twice about watching college game day and you see section zero with Coca-Cola uh, and, and all the great things that they do with their activations. And then later in the show, separate from that, you see the, the, the college football playoff national championship trophy presented by Dr. Pepper because it's an authentic element, you know, that's tied to college football, to the teams that are competing that day you know, into the content. And, and that was a, that, that alone was a sea change because it was now, now I wasn't just working with the media rights that they had acquired. I was working with the media rights plus the authentic IP that, that created a greater connection with the property and the fans and the, and the athletes and everything else. Well, you did so many unique things there and we could talk, you know, for days about, you know, ESPN 25 and the architecture of the, First the BCS and then the CFP, the architecture and development of the SEC network and that sponsorship program. But an interesting thing happened, and I always believe that, you know, you always want to try to get 
as a lifetime learner, you always want to be put in a position to learn new things and apply skills. And Disney did a reorg a couple of years ago, and uh, you had a chance to go to work with Burke Magnus. Now, not on the what I call the the income side of the business, but now on on the the, the programming side, where you're actually writing checks to acquire stuff. And you, I mean, and and I think knowing both sides of that equation, you know, I always felt like I've seen too many properties. I've seen too many media companies buy properties and not buy the right assets. And then yeah. you know, you're back to the renegotiation of, well, can I do this? Well, no, that's not in your contract. You know, no, you can pay me more money. <clears throat> and so I think understanding what the marketplace wants before you actually go buy something is so incredibly valuable. Talk about the, the, the couple of years you spent over on that side. Yeah, well, I, you know, again, it, it goes to um, starting off by listening and, and gathering data and understanding of the problems that are trying to be solved and frankly, having a philosophy of trying to create a, a long-term deal that has value for all the parties involved, as opposed to a short-term deal where only one side wins. I, I have not been involved in a lot of one-sided deals in my career. And I think the test the testimony to that is that college game day 10 years later is still built by the home Depot and, and the vast majority of the CFP officials are still CFP officials and the architecture of the NCAA championships is still there because it starts about figuring out how to do a deal where everybody wins. Because the reason for that is it's the best way to create great content, to serve the rights holder, to serve fans, to create value with partners and to take the risk out of the renewal. Like people are always amazed when I tell them the amount of money that discover card invested in game day in 2001 Versus what Home Depot invest in game day um, in 2020 and 2021. There's a big difference in that. But but you, you take the risk out of the renewal when you build the right architecture that wins for everybody. And so having worked with Burke my whole career, because Burke, Burke grew up in the college sports space before he took on the broader you know global portfolio of programming rights and acquisitions and now a lot of the long form original content more recently, but Burke and I had, had sort of been partners. He, his joke was that he was on the check writing side, as you said, and I was on the check cashing side. So that was our, that was our joke. And we would do this kind of one, two, you know, pitch when we were launching ESPNU together or, or, you know, working on a BCS pitch or whatever. And we were hand in hand and all that. So I had long been involved with the programming department and the legal department and others in, de- in helping design and negotiate the commercial rights for the BCS or for the CFP or for other properties. And then I built the ESPN sports marketing team to do that in the NBA negotiations and so many other things. And so it was a natural transition for me and it was fabulous to be able to work directly for Burke and to oversee part of his portfolio that was now global versus just more domestic. And so my portfolio included major league baseball you know, which is a domestic U.S. property, but has global reach and, and extends across so many of our networks around the world. The Little League World Series, which is very much a global event, uh, hosted the championships hosted in the U.S., of course, in Williamsport. Um, X Games, very much a global uh, property, uh, part of its DNA forever. And, uh, and poker, and then oversaw the commercial formatting um, analyst team 
that manage the commercial formats of you know our 17 plus networks domestically and internationally. And part of that was just to add management, creativity, a commercial lens for that portfolio, and more broadly, helping with you know other properties under Burke's under Burke's oversight. Um, and it was a and it was a terrific two year experience because I got to see how the sausage is made on that side of the house, you know, be involved in the renewal of the Little League World Series deal through 2030, which was announced in August, which is the longest media rights holder, you know, partnership dating back to 1963 next to CBS and the Masters. I think it's the second longest. Um, and a beautiful partnership that now is future-proofed in a lot of ways for both of us, a great deal for both uh, both parties and unlocks a lot of value for the Walt Disney Company beyond just the ESPN relationship, which which were all good things for the company and for the relationship. And then also, you know, was involved in uh, Major League Baseball, helping reschedule a shortened season, helping launch the first ever expanded wildcard series round and and named it the Fall Frenzy with our marketing group um, that used it, you know, that that moniker to promote it. And, and obviously was involved in uh, a lot of other rights-related issues on those properties and also negotiated with a company called Eclat out of Seoul, Korea, one of the first major sports to come back to ESPN during the pandemic, which was the Korean baseball organization, the KBO, which started May the 5th after two weeks of intensive negotiations with Seoul out here in my carriage house office at 5 a.m. and sometimes at midnight because of the time difference. And got that deal done and really effectively for the company in a couple months, and uh, and it delivered you know an enormous amount of live content to us in the early morning hours, which was really valuable during a pandemic when a lot of sports had shut down and didn't crank back up until you know the July August window. Um, so it was a great two years with Burke and a chance to really you know um, understand a lot of you know, where the company's been, but also where it's going in terms of the transformation of media distribution and how it's going to be monetized and produced and distributed and all that. Well, I want to set up the the final segment today, which is you joining uh, Fishbait with a, with a story. Um, you know, we're both, we're both men of faith and um, it was about five years ago uh, we had been, Ron and I had been talking to Dollar General for literally four years about if you ever get out of NASCAR, we had done all the research that said that the the core Dollar General customer prefers college football over anything else. And, and you know, we had no success, but we would periodically go back into to, to Dollar General and, and meet with Josh Williams and others and and talk about that. And, and lo and behold, four years ago in July – Josh calls me and goes, okay, <laughs> do it. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, like, like they do it when he goes like this season now, I mean, we're in July and, 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 and he has a, you know, he has a vendor program. He has a big budget and, and I literally cannot find any place. I really can't give the money away. I, I go to the SEC first and, and, I remember, and, yeah. and, and because of the fact we had Anheuser-Busch as a vendor, it was a deal breaker with the beer piece. My client at the time, the Atlantic Coast Conference, I was, you know, then said, I'm going to do it with the ACC and I'm prepared to do that. And at the 19th hour, Raycom, in, in kind of desperation to renew food line, gives them the the Dollar General convenience category, too. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm literally out here. I am sitting here with a couple of million dollars and no place to spend it. And, and, and honest <laughs> to goodness, in the middle of the night, you know, I've never heard the voice of God, but I, I heard a message loud and clear in my brain. Well, have you called the big 12? And I remember getting out of bed and, and Charlotte's like, what's wrong? I said, I got to write this down. And I went over to my pad and I wrote down, call the Big 12. I got up the next morning and called Scott Pomeroy at ESPN events and said, you know, Scott, I know this is a long shot, but any chance that Dollar General could become a sponsor of of the Big 12? And he laughs and says, Rick, I just hung up with Sonic, who told me they're not coming back. I need a win as badly as you need a win. Um, And lo and behold, we got the Dollar General deal done with the Big 12 and with the ESPN events, and it turned out to be a great uh, event. And so I'm setting this up for the next thing was about 24 months ago. And I realized that at my age, I needed to look for new leadership in the agency. We needed to, to, to go to the next level. Uh, I want it. I want this agency to last for a long, long time. We got a lot of young people that work with us and, and, you know, build a legacy and build something long-term and literally in the middle of the night, I got the second message that said, call Rob Temple. Uh, and, and, and I remember calling you the next day and we had a good laugh about it. And, and I just said, look, you know, this isn't the right time, but when it is the right time, um, I want you to come to fish bait. And, and now it's that time. I mean, and, and yeah, I, I, think, I, I think it was, I think it started a year ago last November, certainly pre pandemic. And we, we had some great fun conversations, but you know, going back to the story about, Lori, ESPN recruited me when she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and they waived any pre-existing condition and they allowed me the flexibility to take care of her for four years and then supported me when I got remarried, had more children. And my wife as an attorney had a career down here in Greenville, South Carolina, and they allowed me to work from here, but commute to New York or Bristol for 10 years. And I always felt a debt to... ESPN and Disney for all of that. They deserve my best. I I love working for the company. There's some brilliant, smart, fabulous people, some friends I'll have for life, so many. And, um, and I didn't want to let them down. I never wanted to let them down and I never will. I'm still a shareholder and you know, (laughs) everything else and love the company. And I just, I just did not want to let them down because I was, I was, I had started this little league renewal with that wonderful rights holder who I love. And um, I was working a lot of really complicated MLB things for Burke and some X Games things and other things. And I just felt unfinished business. But I was so intrigued and Betty and I talked about it and it was exactly what it felt like to come home. I, I had been commuting. A lot of people don't know, but I had been commuting for basically 10 years. We had an apartment a co-op on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and from 2010 to 2018, I commuted back and forth to that apartment, you know, from Monday to Thursday night so that I could work and run ESPN sports marketing for Ed and the the company. And then two years ago, we we sold that apartment and got an apartment in in West Hartfield and Bloomfield. And uh, I started commuting to Bristol, which is more complicated than New York City because I had to connect through Atlanta. And, And that is hard when you have young children and you're having to sacrifice, you know, being there for them during the week. And so the, it, it did feel like coming home because you and I have known each other for so long and Betty and I both love you and Charlotte and, and love Ron Cook and Peggy and, and the whole 
concept of it and also love what you work on. You know, the, the idea of outdoors and college sports, particularly college football and basketball and so many of the others, um, country music, uh, the American Battlefield Trust. There's so much that you're involved in that that I love and it feels like home for what I love and enjoy. And then the pandemic had me working here from our old quote, air quote, old carriage house, my office here. And I was really productive. We got a ton of great deals done that I mentioned for the company. And that was kind of my silver lining as difficult as the pandemic's been and the impact it's had. uh, It gave me clarity, just like I got clarity on what was important in life going through the tragedy with Lori, there was a silver lining and there was um, something that came out of that, which was reconnecting with Betty and, and opening up the life that she and I share. And that was a lot of it. It started, you know, 15, 16 months ago. It was always on my mind. I, I, I didn't talk to a lot of people about it because it was a private, you know, conversation with you and I, but the last 10 months really crystallized, you know, everything for me. And, um, and then when we re-engaged on this a few months ago, it just felt like, you know, the right opportunity to, to try to figure this out and do the right thing, wrap up everything that was <clears throat> crucial to the work I was doing for Burke at ESPN and Disney, which I think I've done and left everything in great shape um, and transitioned everything really effectively. But a great chance to pivot into the next adventure. I, I couldn't be more excited, Rick. I really couldn't be. Well, you mentioned the properties that we have and the clients we have. And the, 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 the real joy for me is that the needs of those properties fit your skill set like a glove. I mean, so many of them are the combination of television and IP. And, and in, in areas unlike college sports that have been undervalued, they've underutilized the IP in, in their you know, not only their their broadcast stuff, but their digital and social media in a way that I think is going to be very excited. You know, you and I are both big fans of the the the, the Queen's Gamut, uh, and you've written a really fascinating white paper that we're going to be releasing out to our to our database and posting on our website called the Industries Gamut that really kind of I think frames your philosophy and your thinking about where's the business going to go post you know, coronavirus. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, like you, like you said, I've absolutely enjoyed that show. My wife and I enjoyed watching it and it, and it sort of crystallized for me the, the need today for the industry to, to not, to not just not, not specifically the queen's gambit, which is to take a, a, a risk reward move specifically, although that is part of it, but it was more, uh, how the main character in that show saw the chessboard. You know, if you watch that series, she sees the chessboard unfold in front of her in a way that helps her anticipate all the potential moves on the chessboard. So to be able to understand the chessboard, to see the potential moves, and then to take the risk out of the outcome and to make the most uh, likely successful move possible sort of crystallized for me where the industry is now with all the the data and the issues coming in and the variables coming in of uncertainty at a time when we've seen, you know, uh, 10, 11 months of a pandemic that is still hanging on, even with a vaccine scaling out. 
and it has affected consumer behavior. And so consumer behavior is is changing and it won't go back to the way it was before. It is changing with sort of permanent um, fissures and implications that people need to understand. And it all it is also impacting probably a longer term recovery, more so for some industries than others and some businesses than others. But but the pandemic is having a material effect. All of our clients, whether they're corporate clients or rights holders, you know, need to gather data and understand that. And they need to have, you know, trusted advisors and people around them that can help them see the chessboard and anticipate the right moves to make. Because all of that's happening from the pandemic side at a time when the the transformation of how media and content is staged, produced, distributed, monetized in, in every capacity is transforming rapidly. It was starting and increasing before and the pandemic even accelerated it. And so I think there's a lot of um, considerations that clients have to make about where media and content and their events are going, how they're evolving, um, how to manage risk. That's always been kind of a hallmark for me of, of creating value while reducing risk and then making sure that all parties involved in a deal benefit in the long term. It's, you know, I, I don't think about and I don't work on short-term solutions. I try to look at everything, listen, gather all the information possible, and then make really educated um, judgments and recommendations on how to move forward to unlock the maximum value, reduce risk. And, and I do think in, in the paper that I wrote about the industry's gambit, you know, one of the things that both clients and rights holders and others are going to have to think hard about is how to take more control and influence more the levers of value creation and risk reduction. And there's a lot of specific examples of that. I, I talked in there about a couple of case studies from Craig, Dr. Pepper that was published in fortune magazine recently. And I talked also about the Walt Disney company because I had a front row seat watching them change the structure and transform the company from largely a wholesaler. Uh, they're a retailer of experiential opportunities at the parks and cruise ships, but they were largely a wholesaler of content through intermediaries for distribution or movie theaters, et cetera. And they, incredibly, you know, complicated transformation to pivot into a direct-to-consumer company that fortunately was done initially with ESPN Plus and then the launch of Disney Plus pre-pandemic. And so really put them on a strong footing and benefited during the pandemic. But those two case studies in different ways are great examples of seeing the chessboard, anticipating the moves, and all the variable moves that might happen, even the ones that are unpredictable and unforeseen, like a global pandemic, but taking more control of the levers of value creation and risk reduction to drive your success and take the risk out of it. Imagine a Walt Disney company, if it had not stood up a direct-to-consumer business, ESPN Plus and Disney Plus, and done the things it's done with Hulu and others. Imagine the shape they'd be in now. Imagine Keurig Dr. Pepper if they hadn't embrace the merger thesis of their of their new CEO combining hot and cold beverage and putting in place the ability to see the market sooner through data collection on porridge, both at, at, the, at the retail and, and business end, and move the levers of value creation and risk reduction on manufacturing, on distribution of his, of his product that then accelerated during the pandemic. They'd be in a very different state 
like some of the other beverage companies having trouble with market share or, um, or, uh, or their business. Otherwise, uh, they've actually been growing, uh, growing their share and, um, and performing really well, even in the pandemic. And so it's a credit to both of them. And it sort of crystallized that series for me sort of crystallized those issues. And, uh, and I think it's just part of what you and I both believe in and part of what I can bring to, the business that we'll be doing with our, with our clients is trying to provide all the kind of depth and experience to help them see the chessboard better, to help them think through the potential moves of what's to come, both predicted and unpredicted, and to start to take con- more control and influence the levers of value creation and, and risk reduction so they can achieve all the things that they want to achieve. Well, I think the good news is that so many properties and so many Corporate sponsors are still playing checkers in a chess world, and so there's going to be great opportunities for us from that standpoint. Uh, one of the things we're going to do is uh, is bring you back uh, in in uh, the new season of From the Bridge in June after you know being the CEO for about six months, and then kind of discussing you know the vision for where you think the agency's going, where the business is going, where we're going to have uh, direct ways to. Uh, to impact uh, the industry. I, I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am. Our, our team is thrilled to welcome you as our new CEO. I'm thrilled to have you as my new partner. Uh, and we thank you today for being with us from the bridge. Thank you, Rick. Couldn't be, couldn't be more excited and can't wait to work with you and the team and, and, and our clients and partners, both, both now and the ones we'll add in the future. It will be a blast to do this again in midsummer because we will know so much more about where things are headed and, and where we're going. It's been, uh, it's been my pleasure and I can't wait to get started. Thanks pal. Here's my new year's view from the soapbox. Every business should learn one thing from professional sports teams. Namely, that each year you have a chance to upgrade your talent. Even if you've won a world's championship, your team will not look the same the next year as you'll look to use the draft to bring in new talent. In 2020, a whole lot of really talented people lost their jobs, especially a lot of older talented people. And these amazing, talented, and most importantly, experienced folks are out there looking for their next gig. (laughs) You want to upgrade your team? Look for some seasoned, experienced people. They are out there, and they're not through yet. And that's my view from the soapbox. Let's close with our first location in 2021 on the road with Rick. It's a terrific little gem of a restaurant here in Charleston called The Glass Onion. The menu actually changes daily and they have wonderful food. They support local farmers and local fishermen and the menu reflects what's fresh each week. But my weakness is their fried shrimp poor boy because they use both local shrimp and bread that is flown in from the Ledenheimer Bakery in New Orleans. You know that bread, that wonderful crispy on the outside 
yet soft on the inside French bread. They also have what they advertise as the best French fries in Charleston, and I have not had any better. It's the Glass Onion on Savannah Highway, US 17, here in Charleston, South Carolina, on the road with Rick. Thanks for listening today on this special edition of From the Bridge as we welcome Rob Temple to the Fishbait team. Happy New Year, my friends. May you have a great year. We'll be back in June with Season 3 of From the Bridge, and we'll see you then.